Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kassaragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? And today, Erica Wagner will be hosting Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Jocelyn Nicole Johnson and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Jocelyn is the author of My Monticello, a fiction debut that was called A Masterly Feat, by the New York Times and selected as a finalist for the Kirkus Prize and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. It was a New York Times notable book of 2021 and one of Time Magazine's best fiction books of that year too and has been given many other accolades. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Colson Whitehead called it a badass debut by any measure, nimble, knowing, and electrifying. Jocelyn's writing appears in Guernica, The Guardian, and many other places. She lives and writes in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she taught art in public school for many years. Welcome, Jocelyn. It's really wonderful to be here with you. And thank you so much. It's, it's fabulous to be here. I want to start by asking you about your vocation as a writer. I want to know about your relationship with writing. So tell us what made you a writer. I think I I think my feeling of growing up in Virginia. I was born and raised in the United States in Virginia um and it being kind of my unequivocal home, right? This is my place of being. But then it kind of, I had this dual sense of home. So my parents, my brother, my older brother, all were born in a different state, in a different time, really. I was kind of the outlier in the family. And so that feeling of difference, I think, just kind of set me on the path of art, of kind of figuring out um, how to, I loved drawing as a child and I loved writing. So I really started off writing stories, making stories, drawing stories, Uh, kind of from the beginning and kind of kept with it. I think I read somewhere that you wrote a very early story called Prom Queen. Does that ring any bells? Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, in the fourth grade, we had to write our own uh, novel or our own little book, right? And we had to we had to illustrate it. We had to sew it together. It was this big project. And I the funny thing is I'd kind of forgotten about it, but I found it recently and read it, and it it reminded me first of this kind of continuity of intention, right? So there's this way in which this story I wrote when I was, you know, 11, 10 or 11 relates to the stories I would write now because there's this little streak of kind of vengeance in it and the streak of 
um, wanting to n- notice, to point to things in the world that I noticed as a child um, that maybe were a little unjust or kind of like take down the bully, even if the bully was me a little bit too. You know, just that idea of kind of having a little bit of power in your words. And art, of course, is always talking to ourselves, too. So when you say the bully outside, the bully within us, you can have that conversation through creating art. I'm curious to know about your literary influences. I know you've talked about Octavia Butler, about Toni Morrison. Maybe tell us why those writers are important to you, what it is about their work. So a writer like Toni Morrison is someone I just really admire for her ability to bring a variety of characters to the page and to center um, and create characters I haven't seen before in other places, especially when I was reading her at 18 and 19 years old. And also to take history. I think of a story like Beloved, which was the first Toni Morrison novel I read, to take an idea from history um, and create in it a conversation that we could have about contemporary times. And I think that's something I still really admire. And for a writer like Octavia Butler, I absolutely love the idea of taking elements of genre, elements of speculative fiction or science fiction, and using them and combining them um, to talk about race, to talk about gender, to talk about um, maybe different kinds of situations and people and the human condition in ways that some science fiction doesn't do or at least doesn't do in a way that includes a person that looks like me or that has had some of the experiences I've had. It's so interesting to hear you talk about those two writers in the same breath, as it were, because in a sense, when I think of my Monticello, it includes both of those elements. The story lifts off from real events, from history, from the Unite the Right rally that happened in Charlottesville, where you live, in August of 2017. But then it also includes elements of speculative fiction. It moves forward in history. Can you say a little something about bringing those two things together? Absolutely. So the Unite the Right rally was kind of an event. We were the unwitting host here in Charlottesville, Virginia, to uh, a, a very angry and outraged group of protesters, mostly white men, who um, came with you know, assault rifles and with torches and with um, banners from past genocides. And so for me, I was kind of left as a school teacher, as a mom of a young uh, black child, thinking about what do I do with this event? How do I respond to it? And in one way, I responded by writing this novella. Um, and what I wanted to do was think about a future that is could be tomorrow, a future that's very recognizable. So even though the story is set a little bit in the future, it's not a future where you where a lot of time has passed. And within it, we recognize a lot of things that actually have come to pass since I wrote the novel. <laughs> I wrote it before the storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., but it has an element of what would happen if these forces are left unchallenged? What happens if we don't take care of our infrastructure? What happens if we don't take care of... Um, all of our communities and at the very ground of it, what happens if we don't take care of our earth and what if we don't address climate crisis? Because I think all of these things relate to one another. 
I want to know a bit about your publication history. I know that in 2017, you submitted a story to a magazine called Guernica. What happened then? Absolutely. So I'd written a story called um, Control Negro, and uh, it has kind of a a very um, kind of dark premise, which is a father's kind of testing, a black father's testing America's promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, if it could apply to his son, his black son, if his son were only perfect enough. Um, Is that possible? And so I submitted it to Gornica and Happily, it was pulled out of the slush pile, which if you're a writer, you know, when you send things out, often, you sometimes you don't even hear back. <laughs> I've since met the writer who was reading for Gornica, and she said she pulled it out and immediately wrote everyone and said, oh, we want to have the story. And they really supported the story and really pushed it out there, and we're so excited about it. Um, Roxane Gay uh, ended up tweeting about it and saying, uh, and that brought attention immediately to it, and then... The following year, she was the person, the the editor for Best American Short Stories here in the United States, and it became a story in that in that uh, collection, which is taught from at universities and which a lot of people read. Um, LeVar Burton, a person I really love from Reading Rainbow, from Star Trek, from a lot of different places, actually ended up reading it live in New York uh, for a PBS program. And so it really had a life of its own. And it was kind of the... St- kind of got me thinking more about this idea of home that is related to the novella, to the novel, My Monticello. And tell me what happened when that book was published. How was that journey for you? It was kind of amazing and really long. I've been writing since childhood, been really interesting, interested in writing. And probably for 20 years or so, I've been pursuing publication. So when this, when I finished my Monticello, um, it did feel different, I have to say. It felt very of the moment. It felt very um, focused and reflective of the world that we were living in. And when I wrote it, it was aspirational. So I was thinking, this is something, this is a cautionary tale, something that we could look at and say, if we, this is where things are headed, but we don't want them to head this way. So how, how can we, the readers, you know, the people in conversation with it, how will we com- be compelled to do something different to make a, a different outcome happen? Um, and so to have to find, you know, a publisher, um, editor that was excited about this work and wanted to put it out in the world was just an absolute pleasure, <laughs> really, really uh And a surprise in a way, because you never know. You never know. You can make something quite beautiful and you know, it doesn't mean that it will get the reception that you hope it will. So I really, I think being an author that published later in life, I really appreciated and had a sense of intention around it. Um, That might have been different if I had been 22. And sometimes things have to happen at the right time. You never know how those events are going to unfold. I'd love to invite you now to read from the first page of My Monticello. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. My Monticello. We claimed it first, this little mountain, me and Ma Violet and a scattering of neighbors, all of us fleeing First Street after men came to set our row of ten roofed homes on fire. 
The men came at dusk, blaring and operatic. Oh, say, can you see? White heads rose up from dusty jeeps, and dark hair thrashed in a harsh new wind, like tattered flags. Ours, the men shouted. Their rifles gleamed as if they'd only just been bought, a megastore militia. Through a hasty breach in my violet's blinds, I even saw a boy among them, blonde and sneering in a pickup window. Men leapt from back seats, sprang out of truck beds, and rushed towards the faces of our homes. White hands clutched metal canisters, swung torches spilling flames. Bright shouts, the rising haze of smoke, all that and more rousted us out. From our patchy front yard, we saw bodies blur as some of our neighbors charged forward to try to stop them. We saw a teen struck with the butt of a rifle, his temple spraying red. A toddler flailed, diapered and clinging to its mother's hip as she sank knees first to the sidewalk. What we saw in those moments riveted us, and then it set us free. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. I now want to ask you a bit about your writing practice, how you go about your work day to day. Do you have any rituals? Do you write early in the morning? Do you write last thing at night? Is there a special place? Share with us the the secrets of your practice. Yeah. Well, I think the secret is just to do it in a way, to find time to do it and to do it. I wrote um, this novella while teaching full-time as a public school art teacher. Uh, And one of the beauties of being a teacher is you do have summers. And so, um, you know, I can usually get a full draft in in the summertime. But with all people, even if you're a full-time writer, you know, it's it's really nice to put writing first thing in the day, I think, really works for a lot of people, and that definitely works for me. So I try to write in the mornings um, before I do a, a lot of other things. I try to reserve that space for writing. And one thing that's really helpful for me is, a, you know, having community. Even though you write on your own, having some community of accountability. So over the years, I've Uh, I have a writer group that I've been in for over 10 years. I have a second writer group I've started. I have the the privilege to be able to go to workshops in the summer and be in communion with people who um, are interested in writing and, you know, study under teachers that uh, are more published authors at the time. And so over, you know, little by little over the years, I kind of built my little community of nerdy writers and people I could ask questions to. So are those writing groups that you mention, are they your first readers? Absolutely. And I think um, what's nice about having a writing group as your first readers is over over time, you know them and they know you. And their feedback is going to be um, tailored in a way to what they know your intention is, what they know your uh, gifts are, what they know your maybe your weaknesses are, you know, and just what you're wanting. It's within a relationship. That's always interesting, though. I find when getting feedback on my own work, some feedback is useful, some feedback is not. How do you, taking in all those different perspectives, you must just have an internal compass that tells you what you need. 
I think that is such a good point. I had a teacher early on, uh, a writer named Amy Bender, who's fabulous, and she I was in workshop with her, and she said, um, you know, she kind of made a little segment on the board and said, this would be listening to every bit of feedback you get, and this would be listening to none. And then she put a little mark towards listening to none, but towards the middle, and it was kind of like, of course you want to listen to feedback and think about it, but you have to interpret what you're going to do with that. And if you tried to chase everyone's comments, you would have a really um, schizophrenic piece. You'd have a really scattered piece, and it wouldn't be the piece you want to write. So you have to know they're saying that. Now, what does that mean to me? Maybe they're the audience I want. Maybe they're not. Is this unclear, or is it just different than what this person expected? And you have to really kind of develop your own ear for what really makes sense and excites you that someone says and what is something you can let go or do something different with. I wonder if your experience as a teacher, too, you mentioned you taught art in public schools for a great many years. You have that experience of conveying ideas to a group of students, young students, of course, in your case. I wonder if that background as a teacher helps you, too, in your practice. Absolutely. I think that there's a relationship for all artists and all makers. You know, there's kind of these undercurrents of what, you know, you have an idea, there's some kernel of inspiration, or you like the process of something, you like the way the form is, you like the way the words sound. They really relate to one another. And even though I've never taught, um, you know, fiction or creative writing, I've taught I've had to explain to a child uh, not only how to do a technique, but talk to them about the ideas in their work. And so that helps me. And also I had to cheerlead them, right, because I have little children. And so if you are if you have a kindergartner who's trying something they're insecure about, you're, you're kind of cheerleading them and reminding them that their way of doing it is, is legitimate and that they have something to say. And so I think all those skills are helpful as when you're making something, you know, as adults, we're insecure. We're not sure if what we have to say is important or if we're doing it right or it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. And so sometimes I try to cheerlead myself or other people in my writing community or group to remind us that the things we have to say are important and that there's something there may be, a, even if we can't do it exactly as we want to right now, you know, it might be worth keeping at, keep at it and try your narrative style is beautifully clear and visual to me. I wonder how your background, not just in teaching visual art, but in practicing visual art, affects how you think about your work when you're making it. I think it's probably the same source, right? So I'm just a visual person. I I notice things. I'm always like watching people. I've noticed my mom does the same thing. Like if someone's walking down the street doing something unusual, carrying a large object that's wrapped up, we're both making up a story in our heads about what that is. But the impetus is this visual thing we can see and then we don't know the answer to. And writing can become a place to store those things and to elevate them. When you notice something really interesting that's gone unseen by most people around you, it's like a I kind of collect these images and they're often a starting place for my work. Um, and I think objects as well. I really, in my Monticello, I really uh, am thinking about Thomas Jefferson's plantation home, which is full of these really specific objects, the things he's curated. The house is now a museum. And so 
describing and including those objects kind of just sets a whole tone and they become more meaningful than they are. They become symbols of things, which they are. You know, when you walk through the space, they are symbols of of things, of ideas, of a life, of a different time. I want to turn now to the reception of my Monticello. And to me, there's a couple of different aspects to discuss. You were just speaking about Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home. The novel is about a group of refugees, I would call them, who are fleeing violence and take themselves to Monticello. And Dinesha, our protagonist, is related to Sally Hemings, who was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved mother of his children, of some of his children. And so to me, there are two questions about the reception of this novel and how people and the press responded to it. There's a literary question, and there is the political question of the moment that we all continue to be in, not just in the United States, but globally all across the world. And so I wonder if the reception of the book was what you expected, differed from how you expected, what particularly struck you? So as someone who's been writing for a really long time, I've recognized that it is such a pleasure and un- and not I did not take for granted that people even were going to pay attention. So there was a way in which um, when the book came out and it began to get attention, it was just really exciting and, and pleasurable and also kind of terrifying. <laughs> but I got a lot of, from the beginning, even from the blurbs and, you know, early readers, authors writing about the book and then being reviewed in major papers like the Washington Times and um, the L.A. Times and um, the New York Times and so forth being really favorably reviewed in those places early on and uh, in The Guardian and um, as well was really, really – I was really floored. I almost couldn't read the reviews. I would just set them aside excitedly. I need to go back, I think, and like read them because it's really strange. When you make something, you just have no idea how people are going to respond. And I think that gets to your second question, which is – the story is about things that are difficult, you know, for us as a country, for us as a um, a world community. I'm talking about history and including and centering those who may not have been centered in in the history. For example, um, you know, when you go to Monticello, the story of Thomas Jefferson is front and center, and the story of his white children and his wife. But the story of Sally Hemings in our country has been brought to light with – had to be fought for. You know, people had to really, like, fight for it. And not just Sally Hemings, but the story of the, you know, 500 or so enslaved people that lived at Monticello um, and died there and had families there. That story had to – people had to fight to have that story just be included in the history. And so I had a lot of trepidation. I had a lot of worry that um, there would be a lot of black backlash which I think writ large there is backlash about how do we include these stories? 
is it important to, what does it mean to do that? But for my book, I've had such a positive reception, I have to say. I've had so many uh, individual readers, not just critics, say this was meaningful to me or this made me think about this history in a more personal way because history is personal. It's a, it's not a story about um, – it's a story about now and how this young descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings is thinking about and trying to reclaim this history in this house. And so – and her grandmother and her mother, how do they feel about this space? You mentioned the wonderful reviews that you got – the New York Times called My Monticello startling and powerful. Colin Grant in The Guardian called it a riveting debut. On each page, My Monticello amplifies William Faulkner's famous reflection, the past is not dead, it's not even past. And that, to me, is one of the wonderful things that the book does, is bring the past, the present, and what you wrote of... <laughs> as the future, but increasingly seems to be our present. All those things come together so, so wonderfully in the book. You alluded to the fact that you are a little older than many debut authors. I think you were 50, am I right, when the book was published. What does that mean for your reactions both to praise and any anything that isn't praise <laughs> that you might have received because it is as you said a contentious subject that you're writing about you've spoken of your familiarity with rejection do you think that's important for artists to accustom themselves to i don't know if it's a Important, but it's just a reality, right? So you have to figure out how you're going to manage that. Um, I think for me, the nice thing about having a lot of experiences before this book came out is that um, I had just a much better sense of intention about what I wanted to do because there's the making of a thing, what you're interested in, what you're excited about, what people are saying about it that you want to change and what things you feel married to in it and just trying to make something better than yourself, trying to make something that's really good and gets at what you're trying to do. And then there's the reception, which you can only control so much. Um, and so I think when I wrote, by the time I had written this story and had this collection and was sending it out to try to be in the world, um, I was clear on my own intentions and what I cared about and what was important to me. And I was less worried about the reception. And then ironically, the reception was much better than I could have imagined, if that makes any sense. And so because of that, I was able to find partners, you know, an editor and publishers that were excited about the vision I had, as opposed to trying to chase or make something that fit into the world. And I think that I was a little... I'm not saying fearless because I was totally afraid, but I just was willing to do it anyway, despite fear or worry, and just recognize and be just more comfortable with that. Feel the fear and do it anyway, as the saying has it. I now want to close with a few quickfire questions that we have for you, as we do for all of our authors on this podcast. So I will start by asking you, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? Oh, gosh. Um, just that my little observations could 
become part of my art. You know, these little things I notice in the world that they could actually be magnified and become, you know, part of this novel. Continuing on the theme of surprise, what would people be surprised to learn about you? My my secret shame is that I absolutely love in uh, in the states we have these judge shows, like the People's Court, where you watch people. I don't know if you have a, <laughs> a corollary, but uh, where you watch two like actual. It's like the original reality TV where you watch, and I and I'm I'm addicted to the People's Court. I I love it, and I I, I shamefully watch it and turn it off when anyone comes in the room, and I love it. Maybe that connects to my next question, which is, <laughs> what is your idea of perfect happiness? In a totally different direction, I think um, just a walk in the woods on a nice day with someone I like. <laughs> it's the opposite of the people's court. Lovely. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? This is easy just as a teacher I think of embrace your your own weirdness. I mean, I think often we're trying to fit ourselves into the model of what we think something is, but what makes things unique, what makes something break out is often the thing about us that doesn't fit in, um, the thing we know that someone else doesn't know, the thing that's quirky. It doesn't have to be serious, but whatever the thing about us that makes us unique is what needs to remain in the work. In one word... How would you like to be remembered as a writer? I would like to just be remembered. <laughs> I just want, I think if, if these stories are remembered by the people who read them, I mean, if this novel is, I'll say that one part over, if this novel is remembered by a person who reads it, um, if this novel is becomes part of a curriculum where someone teaches it again and again, I would be really happy with that. And then our final question is asking you to look forward, what would you like your next book to look like? I'm really interested in thinking about climate, the climate crisis, and about how some of the things that are making it so difficult to deal with that could be turned on in and could help us to deal with it. Uh, The way we use technology, the way that we are willing to believe, the way we can get... um, Radicalized. What if we could be radicalized in a way that allowed us to actually deal with this? We have so much capacity to change our behavior when it's motivating to us. And, I, and I'm trying to imagine and dream up a future in which we could use some of those things to help us um, solve this existential threat on our horizon. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. I'm just thrilled that you could join me on Chanel's Literary Rendezvous podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Until we meet again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. A bientôt